Well, good morning, church. As always, it is, a, it is an honor to be able to stand up here and proclaim God's word to you. So we, we live in a world that is full of uncertainties. Like COVID-19, we have this looming economic failure that is now hanging over our heads. We had heavy government restrictions all over the place. And because of this, it is easy to be burdened with doubt as to who is for us and what our future may hold. Right? COVID-19, it was, it was full of doubt. We didn't know if we would lose our jobs. There was a hundred different theories on vaccines, whether they were good for us or not. We had no clue how long we were going to be wearing masks. Some of us weren't even sure if we would get to see a family member ever again because of the heavy restrictions that we were under. Many churches and businesses shut down. Many of them never even able to reopen. And now we have this looming economic disaster hanging over our heads. We look around and we see shortages in the grocery stores. We're seeing some of the highest gas prices ever. And no one knows if the stock market will make it to the end of the year. And because of all of this, there's doubt. We don't know what our future holds. We don't know who's for us, who's against us. But in Christ, we can be certain that we are secure, that we're protected, that we're heard, we're, our prayers are answered. And we have assurance in Christ himself. We have confidence in the revealed word of God through scripture. And we know that we have been bought and sealed by the Holy Spirit for eternity. And this is what I want us to be reminded of throughout the text today. Is that because we are in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, we can be confident and have assurance of our salvation and future eternal state. So hear that again. Because we are in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, we can be confident and have assurance of our salvation and our future eternal state. So very briefly, I want to look at some of the context of why John wrote this letter in the first place. Because understanding why he wrote the letter helps us to understand why he said what he said. And so John wrote this letter to a group of Christians. It was a group of Christians who were being deceived by another group who had come into their gatherings and began teaching them something different. These false teachers were claiming to have received some special revelation from God that none of the other Christians had. And because of this, it raised doubt in the scriptures, right? Was it really what God said? They were also claiming to be sinless, which eliminated the need for Christ's atoning work. This also raised doubts in their current state. Were they really a sinful people? And they even denied Jesus as the true Son of God, which caused doubts about Jesus and God. 
was Jesus really this Messiah that was promised to us in the Old Testament? And see, all of this creates a lot of doubt for those Christians, and it creates doubt for us too. As we endure false teaching that comes from all over the place, it raises doubts in us. It raises doubts about Jesus. If he was truly the Son of God who died and was raised on our behalf to give us eternal life. And as we read this passage, we can see in, in verse 13, John begins to wrap this up. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, there's two things in that one verse. Number one is that John wrote this to the Christians who knew Jesus as the Son of God. The second thing is that John was saying that I'm reminding you of these things so that you may remember, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And starting in verse 14, John says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. And so what do we take away from that? What we should see is that because we are in Christ, we can have confidence in our prayers. Not only that God hears us, but that God answers us according to his will. You can turn to Matthew 7 real quick. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to good give gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now this sounds like a great, great passage. But one of the things that we typically don't understand about this passage is that it's coming in the middle of this sermon from Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And the whole point of the Sermon of the Mount is Jesus' teaching on the life of a Christian, which is a life full of faith and obedience. And so what Jesus is talking about here is that, yes, we will get what we ask as we ask in obedience and faith. 
instead of asking out of selfish ambition. And so, in James 4, if you remember from our series, James explains that we ask and do not receive because we ask out of selfish ambition rather than obedience to God. You see, God's will is that his people live in humble submission to his laws. And therefore, to pray according to God's will is to pray in accordance with God's commands that they be kept and obeyed in our lives. And if you look at verse 17, All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. John makes sure to rem remind us that all unrighteousness is sin. And just as in 1 John chapter 3, it's not just some sin that is lawlessness, but all sin that is lawlessness. And here John, speaking on behalf of God, repeats himself by saying that all unrighteousness is sin. And therefore, to go on living outside of the will of God for our lives in unrighteousness is to live a life of sin. And so, what do we do about it? Well, we be a people of prayer. And we should not only be a people who pray, but a people who prays confidently, knowing that God hears us and answers us. And as we recognize sin first in our own lives, we humbly go to God in prayer, repenting and seeking forgiveness. Then, as we see in our brothers' and sisters' lives, we go to God in prayer that he may grant them repentance and forgiveness, which is the life that John refers to. And this is how we love our brothers and sisters. We pray for them. We intentionally pray for them. And here's a, an example from my own life. Something, something that I've been trying to do myself is, is to be more intentional with people, praying for them, getting to know you, those sitting out there right now. Some of you may have received a text from me already. Some of you, you will, as I remember to. But the whole point of it is that I'm able to ask you how I can be praying for you, what's going on in your life, so I can love on you through prayer. And while this is hard because of the busyness of life, it's something that I'm trying to work on. And it's something all of us should be trying to work on. Be intentional with each other, praying for each other, loving each other, serving each other. And in these next few verses, you'll notice that we have these three we know statements that are being told to the readers of this letter. But before we get to those statements, I want to take us back to chapter 1 for a moment. You can turn to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. John says, That which was from, be from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. 
that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with, this, with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now John's point here is not simply to prove his apostleship or what the other apostles, but his point is to reassure the readers of their confidence in, in what John and the other apostles are teaching. You see, they were with Christ. They learned from Christ. They witnessed the miracles of Christ. They were even able to physically touch Christ. And therefore, we can be confident in the words that we have straight from the apostle's mouth. And that's his whole point. And then looking in at verse 18, back in our text, he says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So what does John mean by born-again believers will not go on sinning? Because we sin every day, right? Well, we can easily see what John means by this when we compare the life of a believer and an unbeliever, where one grieves his sin and repents, and the other sees no problem with his sin, or at most, they're upset because they got caught. You don't have to turn there. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul says that for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so as Christians, we also need to understand that our sin is our sin. While Satan can deceive and, and manipulate us, he cannot make us sin because we are protected by Christ himself. And so let me give a little illustration. So the hot topic today is the issue of abortion. Now, a Christian grieves over this heinous act. And anyone who has gone through the process of abortion and later became a Christian... recognize and, and receives forgiveness, they're grieving over that past sinful action because they understand the implications of what took place and they grieve it. Now, an unbeliever, on the other hand, <clears throat> we, as we can clearly see through the destruction of Christian pregnancy centers by pro-abortion activists, they don't care. They don't care what God thinks. They don't care what anyone else thinks. They're only upset because they're not getting their way and able to live their life of sin the way they want. And they will go on living that life of sin under the influence of Satan in this world and being characterized by that life, whereas a Christian will not. You see, our lives are marked by the influence of the, the Holy Spirit guiding us. Theirs is marked by unrighteousness and the guidance of the evil one. 
And so there's no room to blame Satan or others for our sin. But what happens when we do sin? Back in chapter 2, John deals with this. Starting in verse 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So when we find ourselves in sin, we run to our advocate, Jesus Christ, in prayer to repent and seek forgiveness that he has already paid for. Therefore, a confident prayer life is essential for the life of a Christian. And as Christians, we have an advocate that we can run to anytime who intercedes on our behalf to the Father. And so we don't blame others. We don't give Satan credit. We simply run to Christ in prayer. Moving on to verse 19. John says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So John's point here is that because we are in Christ, we know we are protected by Christ, and we are not under the, the power of the evil one as the world is. So how does Christ protect us from the evil one? Well, because we live in this broken world full of broken and sinful people, we have this tendency, a tendency to see ourselves as a living Job. But in Christ, we cannot be touched by Satan, just as Satan cannot touch Christ. Now I want you to hear that again. In Christ, we cannot be touched by Satan, just as Satan cannot touch Christ. And while it may feel like you are Job at times, the truth is, you're not Job, and neither am I. See, the whole point of Job was so that God could show his grace and forgiveness and sovereignty through the life of Job. But God doesn't have to make an example of our lives, not to show his grace, not to show his forgiveness and not to show his sovereignty. You see, in Christ, because he already took care of all of it, we have the grace and we have the forgiveness and we can clearly see the sovereignty of God in our lives. And therefore, in Christ, we are protected from Satan, although Satan can try to tempt and deceive us. And as Christians, we are dis a distinct people living under the rule of Christ. So we need to understand that we are distinct from this world, living under the power of Christ rather than Satan. So how do we see this in our own lives? We see it by living out our faith and obedience to the one who saved us. No matter what the culture, no matter what people around us are saying about it, we live a life of faith and obedience. 
And we can see this even more clearly when we are being a people that pray for one another, loving one another, being a people of the word. You see, we, as Christians, we should be praying for each other, serving each other, and loving each other because that's God's will for our lives to love him and to love his people. In verse 20, John goes on and he says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So John's point here is that because we are in Christ, we know that Jesus has come and given us understanding of himself and of God who is eternal life. We need to understand what it means when John says that we are in him who is true. And for this, I found a quote from Dr. Stephen Lawson on what it means to be in Christ. Now listen to this. To be in Christ means that we have been brought into union and communion with him in such a way that as we are in Christ, what is true of Christ is true of us. Now hear that again. This is important. To be in Christ means that we have been brought into union and communion with him in such a way that as we are in Christ, what is true of Christ is true of us. So to be in union with Christ means to be one with Christ because we are in him and he is in us. But the second word, that word communion, now nah, it's a little different and I love it. What does communion mean? Communion means to sit at the table with Christ and to partake in the kingdom with Christ. So if you've ever watched a movie or a show about kings and kingdoms, you know that for someone to come and, and be able to sit at the, the table with the king is a great privilege. You had to be invited by the king to sit with him and eat and discuss important matters. This is us. We are those people. We've been invited by King Jesus to come and sit at the table with him, to commune with him, and to be in union with him. It's glorious. And we'll get to experience this in a way today as we, we come and we take communion as a body together. You're going to get to experience this firsthand. And as we are in Christ, what is true of him is true of us because we share in the righteousness of Christ. We stand before God fully justified, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so we'll end where John ends. In a final plea to those reading this letter, John tells them in verse 21, little children, guard yourselves 
from idols. Because idols will ultimately lead them astray, causing doubt. And we would do well to listen to John's plea for ourselves and guard ourselves of idols. You know, those, those things or teachings that, that take the place of God in our hearts and get our worship and obedience. You see, the false god of these people that had come in and deceived the Christians was an idol. And therefore, we need to be confident in what we know to be true in Scripture. We need to be confident in prayer. We need to guard ourselves and others from false teachings and false gods in this world. And so if you're a Christian, you've accepted Christ's invitation to sit at the table. Then rest in your knowledge of Christ. Love God, love his people, and be confident in prayer and seek to live a life of obedience and faith. If you're not a Christian, or if you're unsure, then we invite you into this with us, to sit at the table with Christ, to believe in Christ, to trust in Christ, to run to Christ. And so I'll be in the back if you need prayer or just someone to talk to, the band can come on up. And let's pray.